Welcome to episode four of Beyond the Obvious, a podcast series organized by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, agus And I'm Caroline White. In this podcast, we'll be talking about the potential for changing our monetary system so as to make it less reliant on environmentally damaging economic growth and more democratic. First, here's an excerpt from our archives. What we have is a debt-based currency. Our money gets into circulation because somebody somewhere has borrowed it. So if you're, com- if you're completely out of debt, you don't owe anybody anything, you've got, let's say, 10,000 euros in the bank, you only have that 10,000 euros because somebody somewhere has borrowed it and is paying interest on it. So what this means is that in a growing economy, you need more money in, in circulation each year. And of course, in a growing economy, people are optimistic. They can see their income rising year after year. So they're perfectly prepared to borrow on the strength that, yes, they will be able to repay the loan and the, and the interest on the loan too. That was an excerpt from a recording made in 2008 of The Economist and FASTA co-founder, the late Richard Douthwaite. In it, he describes the way in which most money is created and enters into circulation. He also cites the fact that its introduction into the economy is dependent on continual economic growth. In episode two of this podcast series, we interviewed Professor Clive Spash, who critiqued the idea that green growth is possible, that we can decouple GDP growth in absolute terms from emissions and other forms of environmental degradation. Many people, including many within FASTA, are arguing now that we need to set GDP growth aside as a goal for our societies and concentrate instead on improving well-being. But how can we set growth aside as a goal if the financial system requires growth in order to function? It would be hard to achieve well-being in an economy where money isn't circulating adequately. Is it possible to have a financial system that isn't based on debt, that doesn't require growth in order to function? Some people claim that all money is essentially debt, and always has been. If they're right, it would follow that our financial system is permanently shackled to economic growth. We had a discussion about the potential for change to a growth-neutral and fairer financial system with Mary Meller, Emeritus Professor at Northumbria University, who has published extensively on alternative economics, integrating socialist, feminist and green perspectives, and Graham Barnes, a currency innovation strategist and co-organiser of FASTA's currency group. If you're borrowing money and you having to pay it with interest, then there's no way for you stepping off the gas, as it were, slowing down steady state. You have to grow somehow, somewhere. In your writing, you've talked about the origins of debt-based money and how this system came to be in place. And because I think people often, when they learn that money is based on debt, they sometimes assume, well, that's just the way it has to be. It's always been that way. And that's money is debt, basically. Yeah, and some radical thinkers also uh, say that all money is debt. You know, that's part of some of the theoretical threads of, of, of contemporary radical thinking. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I don't subscribe to that. I think that actually 
money is not based in debt essentially because you know what's money made of wood stones metal paper printing keystrokes going from ancient money to modern money it wasn't it, it wasn't created by borrowing it was it was just created and like the, the keystrokes there's no shortage of keystrokes on on a computer to, to make a bank loan they, they don't go and get it from somewhere they just put keystrokes in if you print paper you just print paper uh, you don't go and borrow the paper to print so we, i think we focused on seeing money as being debt-based as being the origin of money but i think all money is essentially debt-free the question is how do we meet how do we circulate it how do we get it what's the means of getting it into circulation and that's where the debt-free versus um, debt, debt money comes in you can either spend it directly into circulation which is what happened before the uh, emergence of the banking sector the commercial banking sector most people most of the money was controlled by by rulers uh, or elites and they they just created the money and circulated it uh, so it was, it was spent directly into circulation obviously for people with privilege so i'm not saying it's, it was a, a, a democratic thing but when the banking system came in uh, money is created out of fresh air, particularly now when it's just keystrokes and paper and and uh, uh, you know nothing of no, nothing of any value. And borrowing comes at the point at which it leaves the bank and goes into the customer who takes on the debt. So it's so the money is there and it could be just circulated, but because it's through a commercial banking system which has to make a profit then it has to be returned with interest. So the, the debt comes at the point of circulation, not the point of creation. Yeah, absolutely. One of your other questions, Caroline, was about uh, historical precedence, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yes. And, for example, you mentioned that, you know, in the past, most money was spent into circulation or all debt-free. So would that apply, for example, to the, to the Greek and Roman empires? Because you mentioned that yes. in some of your writing. The rulers just harness the, the, the metal, and uh, and got uh, Alexander the Great had twenty mints minting his, his silver to pay his uh, to pay his troops, and it was uh, one of the figures in one of the studies says that he was using half a ton of silver a day to pay his massive armies, but he was harnessing all the all the resources as it happened precious metal. I mean I don't want to get hung up on precious metal because that's sure, not sure. that's not the whole of money at all. No, no. but it, as it happened, this was. And he was harnessing it and putting his stamp on it, uh, and you know, Alexandro was was stamped on his on his on his metal. Uh, so that so that this is borrowed from anywhere. It's just a, 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 appropriated by the ruler and used. And that's, yeah, that's, that's the uh, that's the sort of the chart of this view of money, isn't it? That uh, that basically it's got its its value is derived from the fact that you've got to pay your taxes in it. Yes, Ale Ale right. Alexander or somebody else demands his taxes back in the same yes, medium. That's it. And the medium could be anything. It could be stick stones. It could yeah, be I, mean, I, I think Caroline's question was whether there's anything we can learn from historical precedents or whether those uh, times are gone and passed. Uh, no, I, I think um, I'm not making a distinction between then and now because I think, as I said before, I think money is essentially debt-free. It's just when the banking system comes in that we start uh, lending money. I mean, there are debts between people right through history. People owe each other a cow or a wheat or corn or something. People have debts between themselves, but not debt as the origin of money. 
Uh, so what we can learn from history is that money doesn't have to be issued as debt, although debts yeah. do exist between people in society. People borrow money off each other, but not in the money creation process. There's just this mythology. My latest book is called Money, Myths, Truths and Alternatives. And this myth of precious metal money and the myth of the market and the myth of all wealth and all money coming from the market is, is just ludicrous. And I think it's the market that's dependent upon the state uh, creation of money. And that QE just makes it obvious, brings it all to the surface. If the central bank hasn't usurped the sovereign power of money creation, you wouldn't have a banking system. Commercial banks do have a, a big privilege in terms of being able to issue so much credit in, a, in a, such a relatively uncontrolled way, don't they? Oh, absolutely. They they have it because they pretend they're not money creation. They're just doing a private service. Yeah. They're just keeping yeah. savers and borrowers, which everybody admits now, all of them, the IMF, the Fed, the Bank of England, all admit that they're not circulating money, they're, they're creating money, they've accepted that. I now want to get everybody to accept that the state is also creating money when it spends. So there is another force of money creation in the, in the system. But if the state is to reclaim this uh, sovereignty in terms of you know, being the primary way of introducing money into circulation, and that's the way that most money is, finds its way into circulation in the future, it's got to get off the fence and, and actually pick some winners and decide what it spends its money on rather than outsourcing that function to the bank, hasn't it, to the commercial banks? Well, what I'm saying is that I, I don't think the state has to, to take over and pick winners. I think there's still room for the market, but the market should be seen as serving the public interest through payment at the point of use, whereas the state is generally doing things for the benefit of people who are generally free at the point of use. The market should be put, put back in a box, really, but not... <laughs> not <laughs> But should it, should it not pick winners even in terms of, uh, I don't know, climate change, addressing yes. climate change, addressing things that are of planetary significance? Yes, yes, absolutely. But I don't think it needs to worry how many hairdressers there are on the high street. Well, absolutely. <laughs> or aromatherapists. So, so that, you know, I think the big decision should be taken. Well, basically, the big decision should be taken democratically by the people. Um, and therefore... Uh, and I think that the people should also decide the, the balance of power between the state and the market. What well, that's, a, that's exactly what it boils down to, isn't it, Mary, and the fact that there's a democratic deficit in terms of the, the way that we can control money. I mean, basically, all, all we do is pick between two political manifestos, neither of which actually comes up to scratch. No, no. Well, at the moment, we've got such a down on the, on the, uh, the state from left and right, really, and, uh, you know, the attack on the welfare state is, is making the state's job very, very difficult. You know, so you get a position where the, the Labour Party, for instance, can't argue for an expansion of the welfare state very easily because it instantly says, waste, waste. You know, that, that, that neoliberal mantra is yeah. still so very strong. You've got to make the case for the public economy. So I see the whole economy as a public economy some of which has been privatised. And, and since people are privatising the public economy, they owe a responsibility for transparency and accountability. I see money as a public resource that should be used publicly. It's interesting. Do you think, I mean, uh, if, you see, if you see money like in that sort of regard, which I think is quite valid, you almost see it as a commons. Yeah, I, I've written papers saying money is a commons. 
Mary, could I could I just take you back to your concept of myths and particularly like some of the myths around uh, growth, for example, and consumption and employment and full employment, and they're all linked ultimately to uh, the monetary system. And generally, you know, we shouldn't generalize too much, but like from the media through our political leaders and so on, they all believe, and it's portrayed that way that the higher the growth is the better it is it's very positive and the more we consume the better it is because we'll all be employed and we'll all be working we'll be able to spend money can you see any way that we can transition from that kind of thinking into like what maybe what you're talking about a kind of a mixture of public and private economies yes i'm developing the concept of sufficiency provisioning provisioning being going right across from the market through the uh through the state to unpaid labour and community action and those types of things. So people have needs in, in, in society, obviously, and the aim should be to make sure everybody has sufficient for what they need, but not too much or too little. And so I'm, I'm working on the concept that sufficiency must be egalitarian because if you, if you haven't got sufficient, you haven't got enough, and if you've got more than sufficient, you've got too much. I'm, I'm looking to set that against the... A calculation of what the environment can stand so that you might say provisioning might may still be too high for what the environment can stand so the other part of the problem is to say let us see what the environment can stand and then share out on a sufficiency basis as far as possible to everybody what there's the, the possible there to do we should start from people's sufficiency needs and the sustainability of those needs so I'd start from just the opposite end. There's only as much labour as you need to meet those needs. I talk about a two-step and a one-step economy. Two-step economy is where you have to work wherever you can to get the money to live. A one-step economy is where you have the money to live and therefore you, the work you do can be directly related to the needs you have collectively, not, de not desperately just your own needs, but the needs of the community collectively. It's interesting because, in a way, it's a, it's a, almost like a form of cap and share that we're we're looking at. There's a, you know the provisioning the um, the population of the world as maybe as it currently is or as it needs to be, and saying, well, we all have to share out what's there in some kind of a an egalitarian and a sufficient way. So I, I like that idea. What you seem to be hinting at as well is something uh, something like a basic income approach as well. Is it? Yeah, I, I've got some sympathy with the basic income, but I think it's it's a bit too market-oriented because what are people going to do with their basic income? Where, you know, how are they going to spend it? How are they going to build a hospital with it or build an education system? So rather than spreading the money out sort of helicopter style, we, we can't do collectively decide how much money we need in our economy for, to meet the services we want because there's no shortage of money. This is one of the myths that comes from precious metal money, which is a, a European thing, precious metal money. It's not, it didn't occur around the, all around the world. Um, it's a European obsession with you know, precious metal. And but the idea there isn't much of it. And of course, it, from my study of the history, precious metal was nearly useless to build a market because there wasn't enough of it. And hence you had to have tally sticks and, and base metal and, and debased things and everything. And, uh, but we still got this mythology that money's in short supply. There is no shortage of money. There's no shortage of keystrokes. There's no shortage of paper. There's no shortage of basic metal. There's no shortage of bank accounts. They're imposed on us by uh, ideologies and beliefs. And so, therefore, we have as much money or as little money as we need to, to, to provide the services that we, that we want. 
And uh, so the money, you know, this where's the money to come from? Is a nonsense thing. Money is, is there. It's when you decide to use it. And the other myth is that all wealth comes from the market. Therefore, we don't challenge the market. We don't stop them doing whatever they want because they're creating the wealth. They're not. They're sucking the wealth out of the society. You know, the Amazons and the, and the Facebooks are just hoovering up the money out of society and, not, and giving nothing back. And we owe nothing to those people. They're, they're, they're just walking off with, with our public resource. So I just look at things completely the other way around, the myth of the market, the myth of precious metal money. But they're, they're ingrained into, into our system, into our ideology, into our thinking. And they've got to be dug out. I'm interested in your thoughts on provisioning uh, area. Have you taken it down the line of thinking what the metrics might be or what the guidelines might be for a government, for a nation state to manage that provisioning? Um, well, I said that uh, what we, we need is participatory budgeting. I've put this in several of my books now. What we need is uh, people in what's something like citizens' assemblies at all levels coming together and deciding what we don't need and what we do need. And therefore, we can create the money to, to do whatever we want, provided the, the balance we have to have is not with taxation, because you tax as much money as you put out. The question is the balance between what surplus expenditure or, or surplus taxation the state does vis-a-vis -vis the size of the market. That, that's where you've got to sort of monitor what's going on. And um, that's my view, that we don't have to say everybody must have a house and three meals a day or whatever, so they do, but how big a house and all the rest of it is something that we collectively decide. It's difficult for me to have faith in the ability of the, the powers that be, if you like, to actually lash onto this type of process and to buy into it and to essentially give up some of the power that they've got about allocating resources. I mean, Marie Le Pen is talking in these terms about bumping out uh, public spending. The, the right doesn't have any, usually for military things and the rest of it, but uh, they have no, no compunction about, about state expenditure. It's the, uh, the national socialism, you know, it, um, the right wing makes these cases and nobody challenges them. It's when the left or the welfare side of things or the green side of things comes in and everybody throws up their hands in horror and says, can't be done. A right-wing takeover of the, of the state accounts uh, never questioned. You know, it's just accepted that's what states do, particularly authoritarian states. I'm a little confused about the whole relationship between state-issued money and debt because my understanding, which could be wrong, is that money that is produced by the state is based on the issuance of bonds and essentially is debt-based money. Is that correct? That's only bridges if there's any deficit because it's deemed that the state mustn't spend more than it takes in taxation. That's pure ideology. And the state is then asked to uh, borrow this money back off the private sector through the financial markets. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. in, in case of deficit, it's a post-hoc thing. It's a it's not raising the money to spend, it's retrieving the money already spent. So uh, the, that's another uh, means of retrieval, rather like taxation, and less fair than taxation, because taxation, if it's progressive, everybody pays. Bond is the benefit of, of the promising future taxation to the wealthy, who can afford to buy the bonds. And now, if the government wants to make a major expenditure... I mean, the, they, they borrow in advance of major expenditure, but there's no need to borrow. Think of the private finance initiative. If the state's just uh, created the money to build the hospitals, think of the savings as opposed to 
doing a private finance initiative and paying through the nose for 40 years at three times the price. The illusion that we need the private sector and the private banks, uh, that we're really a private money system, it's partly the truth, but it's partly illusion. I think perhaps the, the big illusion is that it's not that we have a private system or a partly privatised system, it's that we need it and that's the only way it can be done. I think yeah. that's a big part of it. Well, as I've said in one of the things I've written recently, we ask a lot of the market, we want the market to produce all the money in circulation, which can only come from bank debt, because that's the that's the main source of new money. Um, we ask it to uh, pay all the pay all the public sector expenses and make a profit. Well, the market can't do that. So plainly, there's a public economy going on here, particularly when you've got roughly 50% of GDP is, is is public sector. The sub public sector has got to be funding the public sector. The private sector can't be funding. In fact, it needs money to come in through privatisation and procurement and uh, deficits to provide more liquidity to the uh, private sector. And with quantitative easing, it was blatant. Even if these some of these um, measures are taken, when you've got a monetary monoculture, it seems to me it's always going to be prone to being fragile. I'm just wondering whether you see any scope for a more diverse monetary ecosystem creeping well, in. Well, currencies and things like that. Well, I'm just going to get into that direction eventually, but yeah, but the general point, really. I must admit that I don't see, I mean, I don't dislike them or, or would, would say there's anything wrong with them, but I think they're, they're good as indicators of how to make a money system work, because they show money systems from scratch. You haven't got a money system, and then you decide to launch the topless pound or the Bristol pound or the Brixton pound, and you, you show how a money system can be created, you know, just out, out of thin air. Uh, because people agree to abide by the currency, whatever the currency is, and it's bits of paper are printed, and then everybody circulates. So it shows that money can be, the money system can be created from scratch, which I think is a great lesson. The problem with it is, it's uh, it's limited to how far it can stretch because it is local by definition. And if it got to be much bigger and, and wider, it would become more like a public economy, a universal economy, as opposed to a socially um, identified economy. So I think like the whole thing between the public and the social is the voluntary side of being in the social one because you voluntarily join it. The public economy is the one in which you live because that's what your whole structure you live in works. Uh, but if we, if we go back to the, the idea that money, the money system uh, as a commons, then the boundaries of that commons don't necessarily have to be geographical. They can be based on shared values. Yeah, yes, they can be, but the trouble is that wouldn't be universal then, would it? It would only be if we can share it the wouldn't, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be universal, and I think that that's why I'm, I'm going back to the idea of a diverse monetary ecosystem where you don't set up to be universal in your scope. You, pr you purposely limit your scope of the system in order to create that sense of sort of togetherness, that sense of shared value in a particular money alternative, if you want to call it that. But I see where you're coming from. I think that the successful ones have become more like public economies. The famous one in Google, the, uh, the one uh, where they set up and they integrated with, the pay, they paid their local council taxes and, and the, council, yeah. the council employees were paid in the currency. The Bristol Pound is integrated with the local council and local banks. I don't think autonomous money systems, local diverse money systems, 
I don't think they can get that far. You know, they're, they're worthy in their own right. I'd be very, very interested in, um, obviously, Mary, you've written an awful lot and you've been involved in this for quite some time. We're up against, you know, as you, as you call them, the myths and also the whole societal beliefs around money and the economy and so on. But apart from just talking about it, what else can be done? Because it's really a revolution that's required. You know, even talking about degrowth, I mean, degrowth, uh, to talk about degrowth in Ireland is probably, you know, your, <laughs> I don't know what the religious equivalent is. So where, where, where do you start? You know, for example, people, people listening to this podcast, what should we do? Well, I think I'm doing a very small part of it. I, th- I call what I do theoretical practice. And what I'm doing is taking what we have, the system we have, and reinterpreting it. So the first change is to reinterpret the, the, the bank money, reinterpret state money, reinterpret public money, and uh, just, just rethink, reframe the whole argument as a starting point. And, and I often say I'm not revolutionising anything. What I'm saying is recognise what is, recognise that... There is a public economy, there is a public circuit, the public sector is creating money as the, as the banks are creating money. And once we accept there are the two circuits of money, then how do they interact? Not how should they, how, how will they, how should they be reformed in the future? I'm not even saying that. I'm saying look at what we're doing now and start from there and, uh, and think how we would want to change it once we realise that the way, the way we've seen the world is, needs turning upside down. So uh, it's reinterpreting what is rather than sweeping the board and saying, let's invent a whole new utopian system. That was a discussion with Mary Meller, Emeritus Professor at Northumbria University, who's published extensively on alternative economics, integrating socialist, feminist and green perspectives, and Graham Barnes, a currency innovation strategist and co-organiser of Fastest Currency Group. In our next podcast, we'll be focusing on our health a topic closely linked to the environment and climate change, and that we can often end up spending a great deal of money on because it's such a vital aspect of our well-being. Tune in to hear it on July 15th. Many thanks to Mary Meller and to Graham Barnes for participating in our discussion, and as always, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp.